At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We eagerly wait with anticipation for the return of Jesus, when He will make everything wrong right. In a way, He's always reigned over all things, but on the other hand, His saving grace has received pushback and rejection from the evil of this world. Join us in our new series, Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives where we'll learn what the reign of Jesus truly means for us believers and how we, as the body of Christ, can continue spreading his name until he returns. Pray with me, would you please? Our Father, this is our prayer. We do acknowledge that you are all we need, and sometimes, Lord, we admit that's easy to say when we have a lot. It's easy to say when things are going our way, and life is easy, and the storms are few. When the bank account's full, and the health diagnosis is good, and family's getting along, and the job is satisfying, and the neighbors are kind, it's easy to say you're all we need. But Lord, this morning, we, we say that in the midst of trials. Many of us, in times of, of storm and, and challenge and difficulty, times where our health diagnosis isn't so good and our finances aren't working out, times when relationships are strained, times where even there's chaos in our world that causes us to wonder, how, how, how is this going to work? How is this going to play out for our city, for our state, for our country, for, for people in trouble? But then, Lord, to remember that, that you are the way maker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper, the father that never fails, you're, you're the king that always rules. The spirit that never leaves us. Lord, we can say, you are all we need. We truly can. Because, you, Lord, in, in your love, you know what's best. You know those things that you have conquered and you will work together for our good. You know the development and the strengthening of our faith that's going to happen during this time. You know the perfect timing for our deliverance. Lord, we do acknowledge that you are enough for us. And I pray, Lord, as we spend time in your word now, that that, that would ring in our hearts, that that would be a, a chorus that doesn't leave us all week long. But truly, Lord, you are the one that satisfies. You're the one that brings life. You're the one that we can always trust. We give you praise for that, Lord. Thank you for taking your habitation in us, for being with us. Thank you for your promise to be with your church always and forever. And we welcome you here to express yourself in a powerful way as your word is taught to us through your spirit. We give you praise for all that you want to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Thank you, worship team, for your leading us in our time of worship this morning, Nick and Certainly my buddy Jimmy, and my sister Ruth, and my friend Kevin, beautiful servants of God. 
you turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, that would be a great place, a great thing to do. That's the place where we'll spend time and, and study today. James chapter 3, as we continue our series on the kingdom of God, what it means for God to rule in our hearts. Jesus came, as described in the Gospels, proclaiming through wherever he went, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So change your ways, turn from your place of occupying the throne of your life, turn to him, let him rule because that's where life is found. So what does that mean? What's the impact of the kingdom of God on our lives today? So we'll continue that thought. In 1941, James Welch was the religious department uh, director for BBC in England uh, through their radio programs. And it was an idea he had to reach out to one of the professors at Oxford University to record a series of lectures that they could broadcast on their daily rhythm, uh, where, and his idea was to give kind of a basic understanding of the Christian faith. And so ultimately, this professor named Clive Staples Lewis would agree And he then took a number of of weeks um, sharing some lectures that were all recorded on the broadcast about about the Christian life, about Christianity as he understood it. And eventually these recordings would be transcribed, they'd be edited, and they were put into a book that was titled Mere Christianity. And in this book, Mere Christianity, which a number of you have read, there's Probably the most well-known section of that classic book deals with the relationship of Jesus as being divine and being human. A difficult concept to truly comprehend intellectually, that how can somebody be fully man and fully God? There's been arguments, well, God's 50%, or Jesus is 50% God, 50% man, um, but Scripture seems to teach, as, as C.S. Lewis would teach, uh, that he's fully God, fully man. And anyway, this section of his book that some of you are even thinking of now is a section that's become known as the lunatic liar or Lord argument. Here's an excerpt from his book, one paragraph. Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else is a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. In Lewis's book, he's calling people to a decision. That it makes no sense to 
hear the claims of Christ and look at his teachings and, and the things that he did and come away with just a non-committal response, kind of in a, oh, that's interesting kind of, kind of way. It seems to be pretty common in our country, maybe because of our familiarity with some of those, those key points in his time on earth, like his birth at Christmas and his resurrection at Easter, uh, maybe the way so many people were just raised with an idea that maybe there is a God and maybe it does have a son and maybe he did these things, maybe not. But kind of a culture, wouldn't you agree, that kind of goes along with some of these claims and just kind of thinks, yeah, Jesus probably is a pretty good guy. But Lewis says it's just not logical that you would have such an indifferent view of Jesus. You either have to reject him and boldly turn away from him because he would be dangerous if he truly said what the word says he said and he's not who the word says he is. Or you need to fall at, your, at his feet because if he is who he says he is, no one can stand up against him. And that seems to be the, kind of the argument that Jesus makes in this scene of Mark chapter 3. It's an interesting passage because it's a, it's a literary technique that Mark uses when he writes this very fast-paced gospel. A, a technique that some have called a sandwiching technique, where he, he deals with two different instances, but he starts with one, brings in another, and ends with that first one. So there's two things sandwiched in between, but they're all relating to that idea of making an ultimate commitment to him. That there's different options for how you respond, but respond you must. So let me read Mark 3, verse 20 through verse 35, and then we'll, we'll look at these in two encounters. Mark 3, 20. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's casting out these demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out demons? Or how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sin will be forgiven, the children of man. Whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. 
And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So let's look at these two encounters. You saw the two of them, right? There's the family encounter, and then there's the scribes encounter, and then it comes back to the family encounter. Let's start with the scribes encounter. And we'll see that Jesus, when he reveals himself to us, he challenges our religious assumptions. So the scribes were experts in the Jewish law. That's, that was their role. They were trained in the law. They were the ones that rose to the top of understanding it. And that was their profession, is to teach people the accuracy of the law. Well, they came from Jerusalem. So there were scribes planted in various places. Where there were, wherever there was large synagogues, there would be scribes that were kind of assigned to that realm. But these were the guys from D.C., right? These were the guys from Lansing, from Washington. Right, these were the, we're the guys, these were the true experts of the experts. And we don't know, the text doesn't really say if they came specifically to kind of investigate this, this guy from Nazareth, or, or maybe they were there already on some type of other mission. But what we do know is they tested the authenticity of the claims of Jesus, and they came to their own conclusion. They couldn't deny that he was casting out demons and healing people. That was evident. But what they, what, they, what they concluded is that he was doing it through the powers of demon, demonic activity. In fact, they, as, you, as you heard read, they said that he's doing it through Beelzebub. Now, who is, who is, who is Beelzebub? Do you remember a couple weeks ago when we looked at the life of Elijah? Remember that big contest on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal, right, against Elijah, and um, so the Baal worship was pretty prominent in that time. Well, that's where this name comes from. The first part of that, Baal, is a, a, a demonic god. Zelob is the, the word for ruler. So this is the Ruler of Baal, Baal the ruler. This is, this is a, a term that the Jewish religious community had assigned to Satan, kind of in a mocking way. It literally was a word that meant Lord of Dung, or insert whatever term you would like to insert there. The Lord of the Flies, uh, Lord, of, Lord of Dung. Let's just leave it there, all right? So, so it was kind of their pious way of saying, Satan, he's the Lord of garbage. And that's how Jesus is doing this. But Jesus challenges their claims with these proverbial statements of logic. He says, this, your, your, your reasoning lacks logic. Because a kingdom, if it's divided, can't stand, right? Maybe he was referring to maybe the kingdom of Israel. Remember after Solomon's reign, because of Solomon's idolatry, God says your kingdom will be divided, and the northern kingdom begins, and the southern kingdom begins. And never since then, since Solomon's reign, was it really a, um, a world power since the division. So maybe that's what came to their minds when Jesus says this. Um, 
the reality that a kingdom, when it sees schisms happen in its leadership, the kingdom will weaken. Same thing's true with the house, right? Some of you have experienced that. A house divided. Abraham Lincoln used that term, that concept that Jesus uses, the proverb Jesus states here, and he describes the situation with our country. A divided country can't stand. So Jesus says, and that's true in this. It makes no sense. If I was controlled by a demon to cast out demons, it, it just doesn't, it's not reasonable. Instead, no, my claim is that I'm offering this authority from a different power. Not the power of darkness, but the kingdom of God. And then he says, and the way I do this is how any of us would do this. If you're going to plunder a strong man's or a ruler's kingdom or home, you have to first knock off the king or the strong man. And we saw that in our, the last 20 years or whatever in the, um, the war on terror, right? When our country says we can't stand against this, this terror, we can't allow it to stand, so we have to go after it. And what, would, what did we do? We went after the rulers of these terror cells to try to weaken their efforts. Jesus says, that's what I've done. But the kingdom of God is being opposed by the kingdom of darkness, and Satan's domain has taken possession of people. And what God desired as life and health Demons are bringing destruction and, and sickness. And so Jesus said, I am, I am binding the strong man so that they can experience the, the kingdom of God. But it says, and, th and then, and then he, he makes this intensified statement. When he says that I'm performing these things that you can't deny, you see they're happening... I'm defeating the demonic. I'm not in alliance with it. And then he intensifies his words by saying truly. Whenever Jesus says truly, truly, or, or verily, verily, in some of the versions, know that Jesus is getting intense. He says this has to be paid attention to. That all the sins of people can be forgiven. Even blasphemy. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit... Those sins can never be forgiven. This sin, the blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, cannot be forgiven. The unpardonable sin, it's been called. And it's terrified lots of people. Some are confused by it. So let's, let's take a minute and think about what is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Carefully look at the situation and what's happening here. Jesus was speaking to those who persisted in saying that you are possessed. That despite all the evidence that Jesus was given all through his life, from his baptism to his workings of miracles throughout the places to his teaching about the God of heaven, all that evidence of the Holy Spirit's anointing on him, despite that, they attribute it 
to evil spirit. Despite the image of the Holy Spirit coming down as if in the form of a dove to evidence God's spirit on Jesus, they said it's evil spirit. They refused to believe. They continually hardened their heart against all the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. They refused to acknowledge it. They continued to persist in this expression that this is from an evil spirit, a demonic spirit. And because of this persistence, they're outside of God's offer of forgiveness and mercy. Let me illustrate it like this. Let's say that you are an employee of this um, this popular um, manufacturing business in town, Bart Murgau's Design and Carpentry. All right, so you worked with Bart for many, many years. You enjoyed working with Bart. But then an opportunity came up and Bart sold the business. And so it happened really quick. The new owner comes in for uh, that, that meeting with the employees and he explains oh, the new business and the direction they're going. But you didn't go because you don't want him being owner of this business. You like Bart. And so you kept stubbornly refusing to acknowledge the new owner. So Bart calls and said, hey, you missed the meeting today. Um, tell you what, at work tomorrow at 7.30 when you come in, I'd like to meet with you. We can talk about the things you missed. And he said, no, no. <laughs> I don't know who you think yet you are telling me what time to show up and where to go. I don't think you're the kind of owner that we need to have here. I like working for Bart. He said, well, sorry, you need to be there tomorrow. 7.30, see you then. Tomorrow, 7.30 comes. You're across the street at Clay Diner, eating their new cuisine that they set out for you. Why? Because you just don't want this owner. Next day, 7.30 comes. Time to show up for work, and you don't show up. The new owner calls you. What does he have to say today? I'm sorry. Can't work here anymore. You're done. Wouldn't that be the reasonable thing for the new owner to do? Well, well, of course. Because you've stubbornly refused to acknowledge his ownership. Jesus says, that's what happens in the kingdom of God. That I've come and I'm, I'm, I'm traveling in this region, proclaiming the kingdom of, that the kingdom of God is here, so repent and believe. But if you continue to persist in attributing all these works to demonic powers, if you continue to resist and deny that conviction, the reality is you'll never have forgiveness of sin. Because there's only one sin that can't be forgiven. And that's the stubborn refusal to submit to Jesus. So, yeah, some should be concerned 
Some should be troubled by Jesus' words. Because it's, because it is pretty exclusive. Jesus made it pretty clear that if you have the Son, you have life. But if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. But the wrath of God abides on you. So religion, Jesus is saying, whatever religious conclusions you come up to it with, that can be a, a hindrance to your reception of, of the message of Jesus. It really can. Our preoccupation with religious activities, our allegiance to religious position while neglecting a relationship with Jesus or refusing to submit ourselves to him will cause us to be outside of the forgiveness that God moved heaven and earth to provide and offer to us. It's possible to cling to churchy things but never give your life to Jesus. To be devoted to religious traditions but never embrace a relationship with the one who came to save us. So has... Has there been a time in your life when you have submitted to Jesus and said, I believe, I receive, I accept, you are who you say you are, and I repent and turn to you as my king? If you have done so, there's comfort. Right, These words that Jesus gives, it's like, oh, yes, because the only sin that can't be forgiven is refusal to believe. So let me ask, this week, how'd you do? Did you sin? You did? You know what's cool? Is that the blood of Jesus covers that. That his offer of righteousness is so big and so powerful and so complete. It's so truly right that when we believe and place our faith in him, he gives us that righteousness that, that trumps any sin of omission or commission. Any sin that we do or any sin that we, things we fail to do that we should have done, all that is covered by Jesus. Man, is that comforting. Just think of those that would have heard this for the very first time. Because they're believing in him, all their sins were forgiven. Even words of blasphemy. And I don't know what you ever think of when you think of words of blasphemy. Sometimes the things we say with our mouths and Times of hot emotions. Yep, that's forgivable. Because faith in Jesus covers it all. So that's, that's the inner um, encounter, right, with the scribes. What about this encounter and the book ended it? Um, the time with his family. Jesus is showing us that living in the kingdom reorients our family loyalty. Remember, his family was saying, he's out of his mind. So they went to him to call him and say, hey, Jesus, time to get home. 
I don't know what this personal mission you're on, but you're embarrassing our family. Just come home. Just come home. So as he was teaching this crowded area, right, it says he was at a house. There wasn't room for his family even to get in. So there's a mass of people probably in the courtyard in this area, in this open area outside the home. And Jesus was teaching people filled in the home. And, um, and the family couldn't get there. And some came to tell Jesus, hey, Jesus, your family's looking for you. And Jesus looks around and he says, my family? My family are the ones that do the will of God. They're the ones that are really looking for me. And my true family isn't simply a biological thing. The true eternal family are those who have done the work of God. You see, in that day, maybe today in some cultures, family established so much of your identity that your, your career, your status, your your future was all defined by your family. Where your family was going, that's just the assumption that that's where you would go. And Jesus says, no, not, not in the kingdom of God. No. No, your place in God's family is not determined by what other people have done, but it's by, determined by what you have done. Are you doing the work of God? And what is the work of God? Jesus made that clear, and some people get this confused. They say, okay, well, I need to do stuff for God to make sure I'm in his family. No, he said, this is the work of God. In John chapter 6, verse 35, he says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So when he says, this is my mother, my brothers and sisters, these were the people that were believing that the father had sent the son to be the savior of the world. And that faith brought them into the family of God and Jesus says, that's how to live in the kingdom. Being part of God's family is based on one thing. It's not your race. It's not your ethnicity. It's not your family practices, your religious activities. It's regardless of whether your dad's a pastor or a mobster. It's regardless of whether your mom was a Sunday school teacher or a pole dancer. It's regardless of what has happened around you or what country you're in or what political party you're aligned to or all these other human things, your place in the family of God is simply determined by your reception to his offer of salvation. What marks a true follower of God is a commitment to God's will to believe and to follow. So the question to all of us today is that question. Have I allowed my life to define, be defined by that or to be defined by other relationships? Am I hesitating in my allegiance to Jesus because of some religious history in my life or some opinion of my family? Or have I made other human relationships primary and I, 
I kind of filter what I want to do for Jesus through them instead of filtering all that I do in my life through the lens of my relationship with the king. This is stronger than a loyalty to a biological family. It's stronger than a commitment to a particular church. It's more important than a commitment to a group of friends or to the enjoyment of some geographical location on the globe. That commitment to the work of God to believe and follow Him is the primary call on our life. But following Jesus makes God's will the center marker for how we live in relationship to all other things. If he's crazy, if Jesus is crazy, you need to just dismiss him. If he's demonic, you should really avoid him. But if he is Lord, surrendering yourself to him is the only proper and logical response that you could have. Have you responded to him? I want to. I felt led by the Lord to make time in our service this morning for you to respond to that. To consider that claim of Jesus that he was sent by the Father to bring redemption to the world. His invitation to all who would hear and know of him. His invitation to come to me. You who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The one who says, whoever the Father calls to me, I will no way cast out this Jesus. Have you made your commitment to him? Maybe this is the day for you. So before we, we sing our closing song, let me just encourage you to take the opportunity to submit to Jesus as Lord of your life. In fact, this would probably be good for, if God's pressing this on your heart, just sometimes it's good to close your eyes and kind of tune everything else out and think only of God. That's one of the nice things about closing your eyes and talking to God is that it just helps tune everything else out where you can speak specifically to him in this moment. You can tell him right now in the quietness of your heart or in a very small whisper, you can say, Jesus, I do believe. I do believe that you are the Son of God. I do believe that you gave your life, that you died on the cross to pay for all of my sins. And I believe that you were raised to give me new life and that you've offered to me forgiveness of sins and I receive that, Lord. I welcome that forgiveness. And I ask you to be the true ruler of my life. Thank you for making me your child. For promising that all my sins are forgiven. For telling me that I'm part of the group of people that have done the work of God. We've believed in you. And now I am your brother, your sister, your family. Thank you for hearing me.
and welcoming. If you've welcomed Jesus into your life today, let me invite you to do something, probably the easiest time you'd ever have to do this. Let me just ask you to testify of that and just standing right where you are. If you've prayed and received Jesus and made your commitment to him to be Lord and master of your life in this moment right now, just stand right now to your feet. If you are someone who you celebrate this, this passage and you love the reminder of it and it brought back to you those time, that time in your life when God opened the eyes of your heart and you saw what it meant to be invited by God into his family and you remember whether it was three days ago or 30 years ago, you remember that time when you gave your life to Jesus. Let me ask you to stand and you're identifying with Jesus, that you're a follower of his, that you've believed, that you've given your life to him, that you've determined that he is not a lunatic he is not a, he's not a demonic, but he is Lord. So let's follow him together. I mean, look around. This is a room filled with people that have said, most important to me is not Woodside Bible Church. Most important to me is not my biological family, but most important to me is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who has given his life for me. And the best way to live is a life fully devoted to him, getting rid of stuff that he points out in my life that is robbing me of joy and with him and embracing things that I've neglected in my life because it would fill my life with more of him. This is a family of God that has said, that's where we're walking. Let's go together. Father, I pray that you would tune our hearts to sing together, that this would be our testimony, Lord, that we are standing together, faithful to walk with you, on this journey of belief and submission. Thank you for being our king. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.